0: All right, that's our text, Isaiah chapter 37. Go ahead and turn there or navigate over there if you haven't already. We finished the chapter this morning, verses 21 through 38. The topic there the king of Assyria boasted he was more powerful than all the gods of all the nations, but he would soon discover the Lord alone is God. The title of the message My God's better than your God. My God's better than yours. My God's better because he rules over nations. My God's better than yours. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It's truth, it's light, it's goodness, it's life. We love to get into it, Lord, and read it and and have you explain it to us by your spirit. Lord, those of us who are in Christ, uh, we have your spirit within us. And he uh, has been promised us as a comfort and a teacher and so I pray, Lord, that he would be at work today in all of our lives as we read the text again. And Lord, just give us personal insight. Uh, you also say that uh, we're your temple, Lord, as a body, as a building, uh, and so that you're just here in our midst as well. And so teach us, Lord, uh, things that we need to know about you. We each come with different strife and situations and stresses and joys, but you're big enough, Lord, to talk to each one of us and In our own way, between the soul and the spirit, where only you can reach. We could ask you to do more, Lord, but you already want to do more than we ask or think. And so we'll leave it there and hope, uh, Lord, that you will uh, reveal yourself mightily. We thank you and praise you. We do it in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, Amen. It was the only two part episode in the original Star Trek series. The menagerie told the story of Captain Christopher Pike's encounter with the Talosians. They are humanoid aliens with the power to create illusions indistinguishable from reality. That gigantic heads as I recall with blood veins, you know, popping. Just thought I'd throw that in for, you know, sort of a flavor. They kidnap Pike hoping he's going to mate with a beautiful woman named Vina and produce a race of slaves who will reclaim the war-damaged surface of their planet, Talos IV. Pike outsmarts them because he's the captain of the Enterprise and that's what they do. Before he beams back to the Enterprise, Pike is shown that Vena's beautiful appearance is an illusion. In reality, she was severely uh, hurt in a crash and is deformed and disabled, uh, and the Talosians not knowing exactly how to put her back together. And so she, she looked ugly. Uh, she decides to stay on the planet where they will keep up her illusion of beauty. Fast forward a few years, Pike suffers an accident that leaves him nothing more than a scarred head sitting out of a fully enclosed wheelchair. He can answer yes or no with the aid of a device operated by brainwaves. Mr. Spock risks his career to return Captain Pike, now Commander Pike, to Talos 4, where he and Vina can be together enjoying this illusion of beauty and perfect health. Pike looked upon Vena and did not see her true condition. He saw her as beautiful. In verse 22, God is talking to the king of Assyria and he says, The virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised you and laughed you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head behind your back. The Lord here compares the Jews to a beautiful virgin who has the maturity to reject King Sennacherib of Assyria as a thoroughly unworthy suitor. God looked upon the Jews and did not see them in their true condition. He saw them as beautiful, pure, and virginal. If you've been here for the studies in Isaiah, you know that they were closer to being prostitutes than they were virgins uh, in terms of their disobedience. The only reason the Assyrian army was camped around them was because of their idolatry and spiritual disobedience to the Lord. And yet the Lord tells Sennacherib, my beautiful virgin daughter, laughed you to scorn, and has turned her back on you. It was no illusion. In response to King Hezekiah's repentance for himself and the nation, the Lord cleansed them, and he restored them. Concerning us, one commentator put it this way, when we come to Jesus for salvation, we're made completely new. We are said to be in Christ. We are reconciled with God and counted as righteous before him. Rather than seeing our sinfulness, God sees the righteousness of his son. And so that's true. We, we mention this from time to time, but it's absolutely true. When God looks at a, a human being, he sees what we're really like, obviously. There's a picture in uh, the, uh, the Old Testament of him looking at the, uh, one of the high priests, Joshua. And uh, of course, Joshua looks great on the outside to the world, but he, the Lord sees him as dressed in filthy garments and filthy rags. But then he says, put these on him and he gives him a white robe of righteousness and he says that's how i see the high priest because he believes in me and so when i got saved um, i realized that i was a a black-hearted hell-doomed sinner and and the weight of sin came over my life and uh, god saw me that way obviously dressed in filthy rags unable to get into heaven my good works falling far short that's how i actually looked and then One second or millisecond, or I don't know how it works out time wise, but when I prayed the sinner's prayer and I gave my life to Jesus Christ, he looked at me and he said, oh, you look like my son, Jesus Christ. I'm making you, he's making you, we're making you into his image. And so we've promised to complete it. And so, Gene, when I look at you, that's how I see you. Now, I don't see the way you really were or are. I understand it, I know it, I know you need help, but when I see you, I see my son Jesus. And you know what? You're beautiful to me. You're glorious to me. You're, you're amazing. You, you reflect me. And that's the same for every Christian. doesn't matter uh, what your background is, doesn't matter what you're into. God says, I am doing this in you, and, and, and that's how he sees you. That's what it means to be declared righteous. You're not righteous when you come to Christ. You can't make yourself righteous. He says, I'm going to declare you righteous because you believe in my son. He gives you his righteousness as he takes upon himself your sin. And so that's what this is about this morning for us. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, you will be the object of the world's rage. But number two, you are the object of the Lord's rapture. Uh, rage is a big thing in the world today. I don't know if you realize it, but uh, unruly airline passengers, disorderly customers, enraged drivers, it's all on easily accessible video. Uh, just assume you're being videoed all the time and that uh, you're going to be on YouTube or whatever and somebody says, look at that guy. What an idiot. The last time I was at the Hanford uh, DMV, I was going to say demilitarized zone, but it's DMV. <laughs> It felt that way because there were notices posted all around about the danger of you losing your temper and what might happen to you. At our veterinarian's office, there are notices to remain calm, that they're extra busy because of COVID, which wasn't that like three years ago? Anyway, but, and, you know, so please, you know, otherwise we'll have, there will be consequences, which I think they have a big beast dog in the back, you know, and it's like, wait here for a minute while we release Cujo. Uh, you know, Psalm 2 asks and answers, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. King Sennacherib was angry. Twice in these verses, God mentions his rage in verses 28 and 29. He is typical of both the anger of a nation against God and of individual believers who think themselves capable of being their own God and so are equally angry. So let's get up to speed in the story. We are in the middle of a chapter, after all. The Assyrian army was camped outside the walls of Jerusalem. Their negotiator had urged them to surrender, mocking and ridiculing the idea that the Lord would deliver them. A second contact was made, this time by a letter written by Sennacherib to Hezekiah, It was full of boasting and bloviating and blathering and blustering and bravado and bragging and bullying and blithering and babbling and blasphemy. Wanted to cover everything there possible, yeah. Hezekiah sent his team to see Isaiah, the prophet, and get the Lord's direction and mind on this. He took Sennacherib's letter and literally spread it out before the Lord, and he prayed wearing sackcloth indicating his repentance. Then, verse 21, Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised you, laughed you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head behind your back. We've talked in the past about seemingly off-topic answers to prayers and our inquiries to God. When Joshua, for example, asked the angel of the Lord if he was for him or against him in the battle for Jericho, the angel answered, no, which is a startling non-answer. It's sort of off-topic. In his typically wonderful way, the Lord's answer to Hezekiah was, you are my beautiful virgin daughter. And so Hezekiah says, here's what Sennacherib says they're going to do. Are you going to deliver us? Should we marshal an army? What should we do? And the Lord says, Hezekiah, here's my answer to you. You are my beautiful virgin daughter. But if you think about it, it not only was an answer, it was a most incredible answer. Because if God and since God saw them as his beautiful virgin daughter, what do you think he's going to do? He's going to protect them. He's going to deliver them. It's like the father of a a daughter who hears that the boy tried to get fresh with her. Oh really? Is he still in the driveway? Does, do I have time to get my shotgun? You know that kind of. That's exactly what God is saying. He says, "My, you know, <laughs> of course I'm going to deliver you." We've all heard some variation of God always answers your prayer one of three ways: yes, no, or wait. That's not wrong, but it's better to expect the Lord to answer with some articulation of His love for you, of His mercy or grace or your future with him. And so if you're Hezekiah and you're waiting for God to say, of course I'm going to deliver you and here's how I'm going to do it. The Lord instead says, I see you as a beautiful, pure follower of me. And I mean, what a precious thing to say to somebody, right? If you're God. And then all of a sudden, not only do you know that God's going to take care of you, but you don't even care about Sennacherib anymore. You feel sorry for him because he doesn't have this relationship that you have. Verse 23: Whom you have reproached and blasphemed. Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high? Against the Holy One of Israel. Sennacherib did not make the blunder of getting involved in a land war in Asia, but he did err in thinking the God of Israel was another local deity, not different from the so-called gods of the other nations that he had easily conquered. He would find out otherwise. Verse 24, by your servants you have reproached the Lord and said, by the multitude of my chariots I have come to the height of the mountains and to the limits of Lebanon. I'll cut down all its tall cedars and its choice cypress trees. I will enter its farthest height to its fruitful forest. I have dug and drunk water, and with the soles of my feet I have dried up all the brooks of defense." Sennacherib was starting to see himself as what we might call a demigod. This thing about cedars in Lebanon, he says, I'm going to go farther into the forest than anyone's ever gone and get the finest cedars and and, uh, all up there that no one's ever even seen and touched, and those are going to be my building materials because I am such a great king. And then I love it where he says, "I, I have stood in the Nile River when we fought Egypt and I have absorbed it. That's like some Marvel movie, right? Absorb Man. Don't let him get to the Nile. Oh, you know, and he finally touches it up. Now he's strong or whatever. This guy's gone. I mean, he's, he's losing it. I don't know if he has dementia or if he's just crazy, but he's gone. Verse 26, did you not hear long ago how I made it from ancient times? I formed it, now I have brought it to pass, that you should be for crushing fortified cities into heaps of ruins. Therefore, the inhabitant, their inhabitants had little power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field and the green herb, as the grass on the housetops and grain blighted before it is grown. Clubber Lang was a hungry for a shot at the title boxer. Rocky Three, who has not seen Rocky Three like five times, right? He accused Rocky of ducking the title fight with him, calling the champ's opponents chumps. And so Rocky comes to his manager and he says, Why can't I fight him? <laughs> and Nick says, Because he can't beat him! He'll murder you to death in the third round! Which he does. Nick dies of a heart attack and Rocky has to get trained by Apollo Creed and it's I love those there's like 27 of those movies now right now there's a whole nother series Creed that's got three movies so I love it America aren't we great that's what makes America great Rocky Balboa verse 28 but I know your dwelling place you're going out and you're coming in and your rage against me Because your rage against me and your tumult have come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back by the way which you came. Instead of being humbled that the Lord had chosen him to serve as his arm of discipline against the nations, Sennacherib turned against him. His rage grew. God would deal with him. Now, I've told you before that when they brought slaves back to Nineveh, they would put a big hook through their jaw so that it couldn't come out. Here he mentions like, a, a, you know, a, a basically an ear pierce or a nose piercing in a bridle. And I think what he's getting at is this is, uh, the, this is what Assyria did to their slaves, but God was doing it to Sennacherib, but in a subtle way that he didn't understand. He was leading him along by the nose as if he'd gotten a hold of his nose ring and was just leading him along and bringing him by his bridle where he wanted him. Now, did, could Sennacherib have done otherwise? Yeah, he had free will. But in this case, God was was wanting to do something in particular. And so he played upon Sennacherib, uh, you know, having all these wild ideas that he was, you know, river man or whatever and stuff. And he very gently, behind, un, under the surface, brings him back to Nineveh to accomplish his purposes. Because God's going to, you know... It, when we say that God has free will, or and that we have free will, rather, we really do. But it doesn't mean that God is going to be thwarted, you know. And I always, you know, I don't have a particular example, but I like to use the example of your home. Uh, your children have limited free will, right? But it's not like they're going to get away with something that you don't want them to. Uh, and so, you know, God, uh, there's a plan in history, to bring Jesus into the world, to bring Jesus back into the world, to establish a kingdom, to go on forever. And God works providentially to see that happen. And so uh, the king, Sennacherib, he should have been humbled. God is saying, I rose your nation up, among others, to be a disciplinary force for me. And now you rage against me because you don't understand it, and I'm going to have to discipline you with another nation. And that turns out to be Babylon. Babylon. Um, In the previous verses we saw last week, Sennacherib heard a rumor and a spirit from the Lord troubled him. Thus, he returned to Nineveh. God is over every nation. That does not mean nations have no free will or responsibility. I've referred to Jeremiah chapter 17, excuse me, chapter 18 many times in our studies here in Isaiah. Jeremiah conveys that God's actions towards a nation or a people are contingent on their behavior. Implying that if they turn from evil, he may relent from harm. But if they do evil, he may reconsider the blessings promised to them. And so that's God's plan for the nations. People say, where is the United States in prophecy? Well, where is any other nation that's not mentioned in prophecy? Where's Great Britain? Where's France? You know, any of these nations. They're in this passage in Jeremiah 18 in this sense. God is over them, he, he allowed them to be raised up, uh, he, he works with nations, he's over them, and if they do good, and they bless the Lord, and walk with the Lord, he'll bless them, and if they don't, he won't, and I think we're seeing, I'll give you my opinion, sure, uh, thanks for asking, but uh, I think we're seeing maybe the last days of God saying, uh, it's, it, You know, I'm going to have to harm you if you don't do something about your love for me. I believe, you know, I I think that the Bible could be said to say that we get the leadership we deserve. That's always, you know, God. Many times with a nation, say if this is what you if if this is what you want, this is the kind of sin you want to do, or this kind of leadership you want, whatever you. I'll let you have it. I'll show you what it would be like. You can have it, and then you look at it and you think. What is going on? Where, where is this stupidity, this incompetence, this weirdness from? It's God saying, you, this is what you want. And by you, I mean you know, the majority of people who don't know the Lord. They don't want the Lord. They do want this. And God says, you know, if you keep on this way, I'm going to have to harm you. I'm going to have to bring it to an end because I, I won't be mocked. How much of that we'll see, I don't know, but I think we're in those throes, you might call it, of of God dealing with us in a very direct way. Uh, And so at least the church, you know, we need to get back to business, right? You you can't do much about what's going out there uh, other than vote and be involved and all that kind of stuff. But the church can do a whole lot because it's always been this way. If there are more Christians than non-Christians, what's going to happen? We're going to have a godly nation. If there are a ton of unbelievers and we keep getting squashed, well, it's going to go badly for them. And so God is over the nations now, even though he is not ruling the way he will in the future. He's going to come and establish a physical 1,000-year rule over the nations. We call it the millennium or the millennial kingdom. We are pre-millennial when it comes to that. That means the Lord will return before those 1,000 years. Uh, the early church, uh, well, the disciples were premillennial. The early church, into the, about the third century, were premillennial. Then you get to um, some a period of time when the church starts to get too involved with the world. Constantine, the Roman Empire, the church starts to get, uh, you know, uh, famous and rich, and they come up with a theology called postmillennialism or amillennialism, which means they're we're in the millennium now or we bring it and then Jesus comes back and we hand it to him. And that's, you know, they were influenced by their culture because they looked around and they said, wow, you know, we're the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, and and we pretty much run the world and we're super rich. And so maybe this is the kingdom. And then now, finally in about the 1500s, 1600s, there's a return to premillennial thinking. Uh, So that's a little brief history of the church. And so if people ask you, we're premillennial, We're going to, uh, you know, uh, be taken out of here in the pre-tribulation rapture uh, before that happens and stuff. So anyway, have you heard of the Romans Road? How many of you have heard of the Romans Road in a church? It's a set of verses from the book of Romans that many believers share when they're witnessing. Unbelievers can develop severe Romans Road rage against us as Christians. And that's something that you're going to find... Uh, the world hates you. Why? Because it hated Jesus. Now you might say, well, nobody hates me. Well, they will. Or they would if they could, uh, you know, in sense of being left first. So just just wait. Somebody will. You know, a lot of times it's, well, I've never experienced that. <laughs> you should have kept your mouth shut. <laughs> just, just you wait, you know, and, and because we, uh, nobody's going to get through unscathed. Number two, you are the object of the Lord's rapture. Now rapture is how we describe Jesus returning to take the church home, before the seven-year time of Jacob's trouble that is more commonly called the Great Tribulation. Today, however, we're using the word in its ordinary meaning ecstatic joy or delight, joyful ecstasy. A variant would be enraptured, meaning delight beyond measure. You are the delight beyond measure of Jesus Christ. He is enraptured with you. Does the Lord need you? No. God is sufficient in himself. He didn't, you know, the Father, Son, and the Spirit weren't there in eternity past saying, man, I am bored. What are we, we going to do? Uh, we better, you know, do a universe thing out here, you know. No, that's not, it's, but the Lord is in rapture, but he loves you. In fact, the Bible says God so loved what? The world that he gave his only begotten son. And he is the savior of all men, especially those who believe. And so the Lord loves you. And not just us, the church, but you individually, no matter how weird and filthy you might look, spiritually speaking, He sees you as pure without blemish in his son. Verse 30, this shall be a sign to you. You shall eat this year such as uh, grows of itself. And the second year, what springs up from the same. And also the third year and sow and reap. Plant vineyards and eat the fruit of it. Life would get back to normal. Normal is so good, isn't it? The final line in the Lord of the Rings uttered by Sam is, well, I'm back back from an epic adventure, back because now life is normal again. Now I can garden and now we can, you know, go and and, uh, party and we can do all the things that hobbits do because we're back to normal. And the remnant who have escaped of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. Their most important growth would not be agricultural. It would be spiritual and individual. Their spiritual roots would go downward and deep and they will bear much fruit. It's fun to play with this wording. You could say, if you're rooted, you'll be fruited. No root, no fruit. See, you've got it. Take root, bear fruit. These are all great uh, bumper sticker ideas. And then this one I think is a little out there, but I like it. If you're not rooting, you'll be fruit tooting." <laughs> right? Verse 32, for out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, those who escape from Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord, of hosts will do this. This verse seems completely out of context. The Lord has been describing eighth century invasion of Assyria, and in the next verse, verse 33, he clearly continues to address their current situation. But in verse 32, the remnant is going out from Mount Zion to escape. This is a leap forward to a future time when a remnant of Jews will need to make a rapid escape from Jerusalem. What is that time? Well, it's the great tribulation. Matthew 24, Jesus said, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in in the holy place. What he means is that there will be a rebuilt Jewish temple in the future. And this antichrist, this man, the antichrist, at the midpoint of that tribulation, he goes into the temple and he says, guess what? I'm God pinch your incense to me call me god whatever and jesus says if you're a jew in the holy land when that happens go 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 don't go home don't pick up your clothes in the field just get out of there because it's coming the worst satanic persecution of all time Uh, and so that's what they're talking about and then the lord goes on and he says uh, let him who's on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. Woe to you who are pregnant in those days. Pray that your flight be not on the Sabbath. For then there will be what? Great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world. Until this time, no, nor shall ever be. Notice the Lord doesn't call it the great tribulation. He says there will be great tribulation. We like that term, but I would rather call this the time of Jacob's trouble because uh, it is dealing with Israel, not the church. That's for a whole other study, but, um, but interchangeable. Time of Jacob's trouble, great tribulation. Actually, it has many different names, uh, so don't get stuck on that. Uh, for the space of this one verse, Isaiah transports the Jews to their far future, to their last 1260 days prior to the return of the king. At the very midpoint of the tribulation, when the Antichrist reveals his intention to murder every Jew, God protects them, a remnant. And at at his return, all Israel is saved. Every Jew that survives the tribulation is saved. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor build a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return. And he shall not come into this city, says the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. What does King David have to do with any of this? God made an unconditional covenant with David. God promised David and Israel that the Messiah would come from the line of David and that he would establish a kingdom that would endure forever. The Lord's intervention in the 8th century kept this and all of his promises to Israel on track. And so he intervenes in order to keep this on track. Verse 36 Then the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. Now, the angel of the Lord is an appearance of Jesus before his incarnation as the God man. Uh, commentators struggle to explain how this happened. Uh, but, I, and I say this reverently, we don't really care how it happened. There doesn't have to be a natural explanation for this supernatural deed, right? Now, God could use natural means. One suggestion was that uh, the Lord sent an infestation of rats. And that they saw Assyrian soldiers and bit them and they died uh, from a, an amazingly fast COVID-19 uh, you know, before they could wear masks or anything, you know, and stuff. And, and, so, but, and I, maybe there's a thing I was going to look into that my wife told me about was a bunch of people died because of carbon monoxide. They were laying on the ground sleeping and this lake started to emit carbon dioxide and they just suffocated, you know, and stuff. So natural means sure, that's fine. But I, why do I have to explain the miraculous to somebody? It's a miracle. Even if God did it that way, he did it that way right then. It wasn't a coincidence, right? So God, we serve a miracle-working God. That's the bottom line. Uh, So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home, and remained at Nineveh. Now it came to pass as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that his sons Adrammelech and Sherezer struck him down with the sword. Hey, dad. And they escaped into the land of Ararat. Then Esharhaddon and his his son rather, reigned in his place. What does Ararat suggest to you? Well, it's the traditional resting place of Noah's Ark, right? Get this, rabbis have passed down a story that Nishrak is said to be derived from the Hebrew word Nesser. Nesser was the name given to a plank of wood discovered by Sennacherib on his return to Assyria. And as the legend goes, you know what I'm going to say, right? The plank was originally from Noah's Ark. And so his God that he worshipped was a plank from Noah's Ark. It doesn't help us or hinder us in our study, but it's just, it's one of those weird things that, you know, you find out when you're studying. A plank from Noah's Ark. And you know, that reminds me of the fact that in antiquity, it seems like everybody knew exactly where Noah's Ark was. And they used to go up there all the time and hang out. With it, you know, and grab pieces of wood and stuff. Now, in the 21st century, we have all these the search for Noah's Ark, you know. We launched a satellite, and, uh, you know, we spent $1 million, but we can't get up the mountain. Uh, well, and then you know, where is it? I don't know. It's like the climbing of Mount Everest, right? I climb Mount Everest. With a Sherpa who's been there 18 times, right? I mean, these people are. Hey, yeah. Uh, what do you do? Your lunch is going to be delayed. I think I'll go to Everest while you, you know, finish the, uh, the you know, the bullion or whatever and stuff. And so that's the, you know, Noah's Ark. It's real. It was there. And so, but it's, it's kind of weird. If you can find an application, give it to me. But you know, so he finds this play oh, This is from Noah's Ark. This is my God. It shows how stupid people are. Really. Look. I set the uh, you know, attitude of, this is my God, the iPad, and stuff. And, and so, anyway, pretty crazy. On her wedding day, quadriplegic Johnny Erickson felt terribly awkward. Her bridesmaids struggled to get her paralyzed body into her wedding gown. This is how she described it in her own words. No amount of corseting and binding my body gave me a perfect shape. The dress just didn't fit well. Then as I was wheeling into the church... I glanced down and noticed that I'd accidentally run over the hem of my dress, leaving a huge, greasy tire mark. My paralyzed hands could not hold the bouquet of daisies that lay off-center on my lap, and my chair, though decorated for the wedding, was still a big, clunky, gray machine with belts and gears and ball bearings. Certainly didn't feel like the picture-perfect bride in a bridal magazine. I uh, I inched my chair closer to the last pew to catch a glimpse of Ken in front. There he was, standing tall and stately in formal attire. I saw him looking for me, craning his neck to look up the aisle. My face flushed and I suddenly couldn't wait to be with him. I had seen my beloved. The love in Ken's face had washed away all my feelings of unworthiness. I was his pure and perfect bride. Jesus is more than waiting for you. He is right now, sanctifying and cleansing you with the washing of water by the word. And he's doing that, we read in Ephesians 5, in the context of you being his bride. The Lord says, the church, those between Pentecost and my return for them, that is my church, you are my bride, and I am cleansing you, I'm working you. You're saved, and from the minute you were saved, I began this work of cleansing and making you holy. The Bible says he is at any moment coming for you. And it says he will present you to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that you should be holy and without blemish. And so right now we can rejoice in the fact that when the Lord looks at us, he sees us complete in him. But we rejoice even more knowing one day we will be complete in him. We will be beautiful. When he looks at us, it isn't a matter of seeing us through something else or some other lens. It's a matter of who he made us. And what we look like to him. And we will return with him. And William MacDonald takes one thing that happens at that return that we don't usually talk about too much. But he says, when he returns with you, amazed onlookers will gasp as they see what he has been able to do with such unpromising human beings. When the Lord comes in his uh, return as king, it says we follow with him on steeds and we are perfectly dressed, and we've been raised and given our glorified bodies. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, I think it is, it says that people on earth will look upon us as well as the Lord. We're not going to take anything away from Him, but there's going to be a specific kind of looking on us and saying, Oh my, that, that's what the Lord intended. That beautiful person, that, that's what a human being is in submission to God, and, you know, in love with Jesus Christ, pure and perfect. And what a wonder that will be. Amen.